What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggy-O's. Hi, my name is Shane Terrio, and you are listening to The Riff Raff. Music, stories, and insights from the front line. Let's get started with today's guest. I decided to start this podcast right where I'm standing at the moment, which is on tour with Daryl Hall and John Oates. So John Oates, as you probably know already if you're listening to this, is one half of the legendary duo Daryl Hall and John Oates, the biggest selling pop duo in history and a recent Rock Roll Hall of Famer. He's done way more interviews in his life than I've probably ever read or listened to myself. So he's a natural at it and he's very easy to talk to. John and I have gotten to be good friends over the past few years. He's a great guitar player, great songwriter. I don't feel he gets enough cred for either of these. So I urge you to check out some of his solo records, his latest Good Road to Follow. is really great. I had the pleasure of working on that. Let's get going. This interview took place inside John's room at the historic Hotel Bethlehem in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So we'll talk hollow notes, song inspiration, how he comes up with his ideas, guitars, pedals, road stories, and we even jam on a little ditty called Man Eater. So it's my first interview, and I hope you like it. Are we in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? <laughs> We're in Bethlehem, <laughs> Pennsylvania. Historic Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yes, my so, old stomping grounds. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, John, thanks for uh, for doing this with me, interview. Man, am I am I your first guest on the podcast? Your first guest, man. I start <laughs> right from the, go right from the top. You know, I know you've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews. And maybe this is a little unique for you, and maybe even a first to have somebody in your band actually interview you. Have, has that ever happened before? You know what? Uh, you're right about that. I, I have done lots of interviews, and I don't think I've ever been interviewed by a band member. So this is a this is definitely a first and a, and a cool idea. No, oh, good. 
Yeah, because I, you know, I think I'm in a unique spot because I get a little objectivity on hearing you play your own songs every night, which right. is a unique thing. You know, being a sideman and working with different people, it's it's a little different because you're playing a lot of your <clears throat> your own signature parts, which is something that you know I, I'm really conscious of that every night, and that that's a little different slant. And not only the fact that, but you get to play with me in the Hall Notes. Uh, context in that band right. and play with my and my solo band as well right. yeah. which is uh, two different worlds as it you is. know so yeah so it's a, yeah it's, it's a, it is definitely a unique perspective mm-hmm. i don't think i've ever actually had a you know a friend and a player a musician friend who has played in both bands really no wow. it's, i think it's the first time hmm. it's cool Things. well I guess we should tell the listeners where we first met. I met you in New Orleans when you yep. came down to New Orleans to do yep. your record and mm-hmm. played on your record and kind of hit it off. Yeah. And then we saw each other again in Japan by fate. <laughs> that was fate. <laughs> it had to be fate. It was meant to be. It was really strange. Yeah. So, um, we should tell it. You want to tell that story? Yeah. Um, because that's, uh, yeah, after uh, Shane and I had played together in the studio in New Orleans, uh, we did hit it off, and Shane lent me a beautiful little Martin to play on a song, Lose It in Louisiana, which was awesome. Uh, and then, um, I had been invited by Larry Carlton to go to Japan and be his special guest at the uh, Tokyo Jazz Festival. And we were going to work up a couple songs with Larry Carlton's band. And, uh, what had happened was um, Larry Carlton's son, who was supposed to play bass on that particular show, did not make it on the plane. He got sick. And um, they uh, they were panicking. And uh, their manager called me in the hotel in Tokyo and said, man, do you know anybody can play bass? And Shane uh, was, was in, in Japan with his wife. And uh, I said, well, man, I know an amazing guitar player and... Something tells me he can probably play bass. Um, I didn't want to throw throw him into the fire, but um, so I called Shane up and um, asked him if he wanted to play bass with Larry Carlton, and, and that's yeah. how it all kind of came down. Yeah, that was a that was a bit of a stressful night. I remember telling <laughs> Shane, "Go get me some sake. I'm just going to stay up all night and learn this show." <laughs> well, lucky it was a blues show, but it did get into some of the Larry uh, complicated jazz well, jazz yeah. stuff as well. But I, that's a whole other. Part of the story. I had a chart of room room uh, 335 that it was probably from the original session. It looked like it had been photocopied a hundred times <laughs> with arrows drawn everywhere. You Man, know, I, well, I, I'll tell you what. It wasn't really that. Well, I, I want to tell you folks out there, Shane is, is an amazing guitar player, and he is also an, a pretty amazing bass player because oh, he John. covered it. And not only did he cover it, he nailed it. Um, and I think everyone was very impressed with that and the fact that he pulled it together in 24 hours and rearranged this entire trip and then ended up playing with with larry on on a few of his other japanese dates so the whole thing came together in a very cool way it did and then we met um we met let's see no i went back to japan right after that that's what but then you i got a call from you sometime during that time we had been Mm -hmm. talking and here we are so it's like a year and a half later well i was you know i i just had shane and i hit it off and i was so impressed with his playing and i really just i just thought that the what he brought to the recording session and what he brought live I felt would be a real asset to the Hall and Oates band. And I the first thing I did was call Daryl. And I said to Daryl, I said, Daryl, you know, I said, ever since T Bone Wolk uh, left you know, left this earth and left our band, um, 
you know, we had a number of great guitar players and, uh, you know, in the band. We've always had great players in our bands. But um, I, there was something missing. It was something, a presence missing and a, a kind of a commanding leadership presence missing. And I thought Shane might be the guy who could fill that. And I really convinced Daryl that he should give Shane a listen and get to know him. And, and it was a cool thing that, that Shane went up to New York and hung out with Daryl. And eventually, uh, you know, now he's uh, he is the MD and, and the lead guitar player in the band. And it's it's fantastic. It's uh, really brought our whole level up, I think. Well, I don't take it lightly. I, I appreciate that, John. And I'm um, glad to be here. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned T-Bone. I Unfortunately, I never did get to meet T-Bone. Mm-hmm. I did stand probably six feet from him and watch, you know, his back was turned when we did the... Years ago, we did a show together. I was with the Neville Brothers. Oh, oh yeah. in Demian Parade. I remember that. In the and middle, remember, two o'clock in the morning yeah, at the Superdome. Insane. Yeah. And I remember standing. I I saw T Bone, and I was there was a Leslie cabinet, the B three, and I remember going, "Man, shit, this is so funky." It was no can do, and I was like, "Wow." And now I just you know I wish I could have met T Bone. I mean, I knew a lot of people that I know a lot of people that knew T Bone, and I feel like I know him because yeah. I'm kind of. I'm in his world. You, you know? are. You're kind you of know. standing in his footsteps for, for yeah. real, you know, even though he did play bass and eventually he played guitar, but, you know, he played everything great. Yeah, I mean, you know, Shane, you know, this thing about the Hall & Oates band is that it has a it has a history of having these amazing players. Of course. Yeah. You know, think about the guitar players that we have. You know, we started with Chris Bond and Todd Sharp and then up through uh, Caleb Quay and, uh, you know, of course, G.E. Smith through the 80s and Paul Pesco and, uh, you know, so many great, great, guitar, players, great yeah. guitar players. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a chair, so to speak, that has yeah. been, uh, been pretty legendary over the years. And I think you... Uh, you know, man, you are you are definitely taken to another level. So I'm I'm very well, happy about it. One of the things I really respect about you and Daryl is is your ability to you know the way you like to you're, you you like your guys around and you get the best players you can and mm-hmm. the personalities bond. I mean, these are such a great bunch of guys, man. Personalities. Nobody has any vices. Everybody gets along. Yep. It's like I have to look over my shoulder a lot of times and just say. Is this for real? Because <laughs> I'm used to like some volatility somewhere, yeah. some personality clashes. Well, you everybody know, gets along, man. It's almost yeah. too easy. And you and Daryl just let guys do what they do. And and I got to say, being, you know, working with people, recording, blah blah blah, being on stage, you and Daryl, you know, I the creative leash that I have, the wide girth that I'm able to stretch with respect to the song, is pretty amazing because. You'll tell me if something's not right, but most of the time, either I'm doing it doing it right, or <laughs> you're just letting me try things, which is an amazing. I got to tell you, to be a sideman and have this kind of freedom is few and far between. You know. Well, you know, we we both, you know, we're, we're firm believers that you surround yourself with with good people and let them do what they do. And of course, it, as you said, you know, you do have to, you know, it has to be within the confines of the arrangement. Sure. And in some ways, you know, some of the stuff is very written. And when I say written, it's not physically written on paper, but it's written over the years in the recordings and some of the signature licks and yeah. signature things like intros and certain solos that are actually, you know, the, the actual original recording, it becomes part of the arrangement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the cool part is that you, you pay tribute and you're, you're faithful to that aspect of it but then when the in the moments when you can do your own thing and be your own you know bring your own element and your own creativity to it we we let that happen and that is uh, that's been really uh, you're right about that that's been something we've always done over the years mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's so rare in, in, in today's... Well, I wouldn't know. I've never been in another band. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, okay, well, you live in Nashville part-time, yeah. so Nashville is, is completely different. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you, you basically have studio guys and you mm-hmm. have... L.A., the, that line is a little more blurred in New York, but, but to me, it's like you, you, when you commit to a band, it's, it's, it's like you're a sideman, but it kind of is a band. Almost. Oh, it's a band. Yeah. Daryl and I have always thought of ourselves as two, two guys with a band. It's yeah. a band. I mean, the sound that we've done over the years has always been created by a band. In the early days, of course, it was a studio studio musicians, but we still treated it the same way. And we had the type of studio musicians who just didn't didn't phone it in. You know, they yeah. came to play. And yeah. and uh, you know, I, I think a lot of way, times it's a testament to the songs. I think good players like to play good songs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when you have good I songs, do. it makes it, it makes it more, I know more fun. I do. about the songs yeah. so i know a lot of people would love to hear about your songwriting um you know the other day i heard you say something interesting i think it was when we did the howard stern show you said that you and daryl had never made a conscious attempt to 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 put any more effort into one song over another mm-hmm. like you basically didn't try to design a hit mm-hmm. you just wrote songs and That's you true. put the, the same attention to detail in every song some of them just took off and other That's ones right. do I mean, what do you think in today's is that is that still your your approach to songwriting now? Or? Absolutely. I every time I sit down to write a song, whether it's by myself or with someone else, I, I try to try to write the best song I can. I try to throw all the rules out the window. I try to not be chained to my past. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, you always lean on certain things that you know work. You know, whether it's a chord progression or a groove or a, a riff or whatever. But you know, the the, the thing for me is that you know I, I just want to. I just think every songwriting session is an opportunity to write a great song. It never, you know, seldom happens. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, at least you have that chance every time. And um, as you said, we we really spent as much time on every song. There wasn't one song we went, ah, oh, it's just going to be an album track. We'll just, let's just do one take on it and get it done and, and you know, put some vocals on it. We're finished. We never even thought on those terms at all. Mm-hmm. Every song was fully realized to the best of its ability, and or to the best of our ability. And then, th- then you know, the world gets involved. You know, right. the record company, yeah, the radio guys, you know, the the A and R guys. You know, hey man, this is one man. This is the hit. And you know, sure, some of those songs do rise to the top, and the ones that rise to the top were the hits. But that's, I think, one of my biggest peeve, pet peeves over the years, especially with rock critics was that we were this kind of hit making machine who had this secret pact with the devil who knew how to just create this hit record that's bullshit because if if it was easy everyone would do it that's the first thing and secondly it's just a matter of certain things all coming together you know a great song a great lyric it has to be in sync with the times it has to be 
It has to reflect what people are thinking about. And it has to lodge into their brain, like worm into their brain like a disease where they just can't get that hook out of their (laughs) head, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, you see that. No can do. People immediately get up and dance. Well, that's... It's so simple. That groove is so simple. But it's iconic, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things. Michael Jackson say he took the groove for Billy. Yeah, King, you know he borrowed he, he didn't say it obviously, but he oh absolutely. He said he came backstage one time. We played in L.A. and he, he and his brothers came back, and they hung out in the dressing room. And he said he said man he goes I danced to No Can Do in front of my mirror in my bedroom. Wow. And then he you know and he said he said man I love that groove I love that groove. And then when Billy Jean came out it was pretty obvious that that was that was the starting point for him. But. You know, I don't. I don't look at it. I look at it as a compliment. I look at it like, I think the entire tree of rock and roll, uh, from the roots on up, is built upon the things that came before it. You know, everything I do is predicated and and influenced and informed somehow or another on on you know by the music that I heard, whether I heard it yesterday or I heard it you know when I was a kid. It doesn't matter. Somehow it's lodged in there, and and you know somehow or another it's going to come out. Yeah, I mean everything is sort of derivative from something. I mean, yeah. even if it's there's if, very if it few true originals. Subconsciously or yeah, not, yeah. It's, uh, do you have a favorite song that you like to play every night? <laughs> well, you know, I, I know I, you have your whole solo repertoire too. Yeah, maybe I mean, something from that, and then maybe something from. I Paula. just say that you know, for me, it's she's gone. There's something. Yeah. There's this magical quality about that song. It is so right on so many levels. Um, and, you know, if I, I can look at it in a lot of ways. You know, I can look at it from a songwriter's point of view because I co-wrote it with Daryl. I can look at it from a singer's point of view because it's an amazing song to sing. I can look at it from a player's point of view because the chord changes are really unique yeah, and, are. and awesome. Yeah. Um, and I look at it from, from being part of a band, you know, playing my part in the arrangement. break that song down but it doesn't matter you take the overall effect of what happens and when that modulation happens I mean I like to joke that Daryl and I got all our modulations out in one one song because we very seldom modulated for the rest of our career <laughs> yeah. but uh, it's kind of funny but it's not really funny because it, it has this majesty it just goes to this other and the really unique part of the song is this in the key of E but there's not one tonic chord yeah, in this does, whole yeah, song. It's, the it's a really great that that <laughs> a, modulation is just epic, man. When it breaks down and there's that big hole and you can hear the delay trail off and it's like and it's a big modulation. It's like a minor third or something. Yeah, it's three three half step modulations. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's a, that is a great one. I never thought about that. All, all those, there's a lot of chords in that song. There's a lot of chords in that song, um, and you know what? But but they all work, and it all works. It's you know uh, the verse. You know, is something Daryl. It's very Daryl. The verse by pedaling the B mm-hmm. B note. You know, mm-hmm. over the A A major into B major. Mm-hmm. That pedal tone piano thing. That's a very signature Daryl thing. Um, I wrote the chorus, and when I wrote the chorus, it sounded like a folk song. It sounded like a Cat Stevens song. Mm. Um, but you know, of course, as as the arrangement took a shape in the studio, and, and it became became more of a you know, whatever acoustic R and B or electric R and B song it was, you know, that we we modified various things. But it's just this a combination of my chord changes in the chorus and Daryl's chord changes in the verse, and they just perfectly blend together in in this seamless. You know, seamless. Uh, you know, one thing, thing I can I can tell me if I'm wrong, but just sort of a being involved in in some of the arranging and transcribing a bunch of the songs and writing charts. It seems that you you know mm-hmm. you are primarily yeah. a guitar player, and Daryl was mainly keyboards, and he took up guitar later. So right. you had like Daryl had the keyboard voicings and those things yes. in his head, and you came from the more folk rock. Mm-hmm guitar thing and that's that seemed right. like a really great blend yeah it's true and that's exactly what happened and he and i both learned from each other and we both then transferred that information like i had to uh realign and relearn and rediscover how uh, my, my guitar playing uh evolved because i had to play with a piano player because he had such unusual voicings and he had the piano style uh, voicings so i had to adapt my fingerings and my chord mm-hmm chord progressions for to play like with the songs that he would initiate or write and then i you know he didn't know anything about american traditional music you know he was totally a doo-wop street corner mm-hmm. you know and classically trained so he got into all the modal stuff and and the uh, folky stuff and the bluesy stuff that i was doing and then you know of course then in later years as you said he started moving to the guitar because he really wanted to play guitar and then i ended up taking piano lessons uh, to because i felt like my my music theory was a bit weak in the mid you know mid early 70s and i went and took a you know a bunch of uh music theory courses which of course i had to do on piano so it enabled me to understand a little bit more about that aspect of things now so i I've, i don't write on piano very much but i have written on piano over hmm. the years yeah it it did forces you to, to see think things differently. in a more yeah. unconventional yeah oh, you, you think break differently out of your patterns the rhythms are different patterns. yeah exactly mm-hmm. who were some of your early influences on guitar well you know in the earliest times when i first started playing because i started playing super young i was only six when i started playing i played three three chord country songs um i remember playing oh lonesome me by don gibson i played some everly brothers stuff um i played some buddy holly stuff um, so that was, you know, kind of country and, and country and kind of rockabilly that, that was really easy to play as a little kid. And eventually, you know, I'm, Chuck Berry became mm-hmm. a huge influence on me. I, you know, I had to learn all the Chuck Berry stuff. Sure, yeah. And then, uh, then I like I liked to play Little Richard stuff, even though he played it on piano. You know, to me, that's the shuffle, his swing and shuffle was just f- f- amazing. Yeah. Uh, from there, I moved from the early ro- roots rock and roll. I moved into folk music and blues, Delta blues, Appalachian you know, bluegrass, I'm not a very good bluegrass player, but I liked it, and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, and then eventually Curtis Mayfield was a huge influence on me. Uh, the fact that he 
He played he played and sang at the same time was very unique as an R&B performer. Not many R&B performers did that. Blues players did, of course, but not pop R&B guys. And uh, you know, he used the capo sometimes, mm-hmm. which was kind of folky yeah, in a way. Yeah. So I saw that I began to see how you know that my folky influences could be you know adapted into the world of like more like urban R&B. And so he was a he was kind of a, a, a real key person to me. And then when I first heard Jimi Hendrix. Um, I just, you know, the first thing that I realized was he was just playing Curtis Mayfield really loud. <laughs> and that was one of, you know, one of the things that 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 immediately I understood. And then, um, you know, of course, his soloing and his experimental Did you stuff. ever see Hendrix live? No, man. I, it's a bummer. Because I know Daryl says Daryl song. Yeah. Daryl went and I was supposed to go with Daryl. And uh, I just, for some reason, I didn't go. I don't know why I didn't But, but go. he says it wasn't that good. <laughs> well. <laughs> he said maybe it was an off night. I don't know, but. I you know, it does, that doesn't surprise me because the reality of it is, if you you know, compared to today and and the the type of live shows and the sound and the PA systems and things that we have now, you think back to his early shows. They may have been very vibey, but a lot of them didn't really sound very good. He was just so critical. And you know, yeah. Daryl Daryl's yeah. listening with a very uh, you know very yeah, critical ear. Very critical. You know, so. But I did see the band back in the early uh, wow. 1970, and they blew my mind. I thought they were amazing. Let's go play a song. Let's go play a song. <laughs> and I will play the changes. You play the changes, and then and I'll play them, and then we can just trade. Um, you just trade? I'll solo first, then. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, you solo first. So, man eater? Yeah, let's go. Ready? Are we recording? Yeah, man. Right. You can come. Yeah. 
yeah, that was pretty good. That's a great arrangement, man. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Did you always use a? I, we're talking guitar geek technical stuff. Did you always use a, a twin, a dual guitar amp setup? Like I know now you're stereo, right? Yeah, Has it no. Always been like no, that? actually, that's been more, kind of a recent thing. I I probably started that um, probably you know around 2000. Um, I. I didn't really rely on a, on a very uh, elaborate pedal board in the old days. Mm-hmm. My thing was usually a, a, a tuner, a wah-wah pedal, and an overdrive, and a chorus. Yeah, well, and what I, else you need? That's pretty <laughs> I much played it. with that, you know, through the through the seventies and eighties. That's probably all I ever used. Hmm. Um, then later on, I started adding more things. I think what happened was really. Um, well, there was a bunch of circumstances. When, when T-Bone switched from bass to guitar and Daryl started playing more guitar, I started rethinking my parts um, in the Hall & Oates uh, set because there was too much guitar playing going on. And um, I just thought, well, someone's got to do something different. So rather than stick with my original parts, which I had played for many, many years, I actually reinvented a lot of my guitar parts, and I made them much more... Um, I, I started to, to think more uh, broadly and cor- cor- uh, thought about chords mm-hmm. and just in terms of laying down a lot of, uh, you know, just making sure the harmonics of the chords were, were, the were being, the fundamentals of the chords were being uh, heard. Mm-hmm. And um, I became, you know, I became more conscious. So as I did that, I wanted sounds that just had a little bit more color to them. Mm-hmm. So I began adding a little bit more, uh, you know, like I started using a line six uh, device, multi multi uh, effects device that had various chorus, dimension D, various delays, mm-hmm. things that would give my broad chord, chordal bass a little bit more color and interest. Right. And I started going in that that, that route. So I added that stuff, um, and then I started getting into my delays a little bit more. So that was really more recent in the in the two thousands that I started doing that. Yeah, I remember in Japan you had that line six thing and it sounded great. I think you had yeah. two deluxes in the the line six. And yeah, you know, uh, the line six. You know, I don't care for the compressed kind of. A th- it kind of thins your thins you out a bit. There's something about the the inherent quality of them, but for uh, for a run and gun type mm-hmm, show, mm-hmm. and I use the line six M nine box all the time. Especially, I learned that that like uh, I got asked to jam all the time with people. I started hanging with jam bands and started like playing, you know, with all these different groups. And every time I I play, uh, all of a sudden I I I found this Line Six M Nine box, and I realized I could do pretty much everything I needed to do with that little box. So if I showed up at a gig with it, and I have it in a little SBK mic case, mm-hmm. so if I showed up at the gig, I could just plug it in. Didn't matter whose amp I was playing through, I could always get something that was respectable. So yeah. that's become my little pocket, you know, it's way to travel. It's good to, to have travel. something consistent too, yeah. and, and sometimes yeah. less is more. Man. Exactly. The less shit you have. Yeah. <laughs> the guitar, the Strat you're playing now, it's a pretty iconic guitar. Yeah. It's on the cover of Bigger Than Both of Us, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And you had Seymour Seymour Duncan mm-hmm. redo the pickups and everything. Is that? Would you say that's your favorite electric guitar? Yeah. Without a doubt, okay. I I started using that guitar in um, 1973. 
1971, I was using an SG stand, uh, I, a uh, Les Paul Special, a cream-colored, t- uh, like a taffy-colored uh, 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 Les Paul Special that I brought from a friend of my brother, uh, I mean, a guy I knew in grade school, his older brother had it, and I knew his brother had quit playing guitar, and I knew it was in his attic, and I think I brought it, bought it from him around 1971 or 72, and I played it for the first two years that I worked with Daryl, but I never liked it. Didn't, was that P90 pickups? Yeah, two P90s, oh. and the neck was chunky, and it, it it just was a cool guitar, and I played it because it was a cool guitar, but not because I'm... You're not I'm, a chunky neck guy. No, I'm yeah. not, and I, and I played it just because it was the only good guitar I had. Um, but when I sold that guitar, uh, I bought the uh, the 58 Strat from a drug dealer in New York um, <laughs> <laughs> for 150 bucks. Wow. Yeah, and... Um, and I had it routed out, and uh, boy, if you ever saw Under the Pit Guard, it is the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life. It looks like somebody routed it out with well, a chisel. Well, it's on YouTube, right? Oh, there's yeah. If, guy, you, if anybody that's wants right. to see that. It's... <laughs> when Seymour Duncan takes the pit, pit guard off, um, because I had redone it as, as a Strat, you know, Strat configuration, it's the ugliest thing you've ever seen. It's all hollow. The entire guitar is hollow. Wow. And I think it has something to do with its sound. I'm sure First it of all, it's ash. It's light wood to yeah. start with. The guitar is very light. But it has a lot of brass parts. Um, in those days, in the early '70s, putting brass stuff like uh, all your, um, you know, your tunematic bridges and uh, it was considered an upgrade. That was a big upgrade. Yeah, yeah brass plates on the back, uh, you know, brass co- uh, cover for the strings on the back. And I'd always block the block the, uh, the you know the vibrato handle. I never used the vibrato oh. ever. So there's a wood block in there holding it, you know, steady. I'd rather have it in tune. But um, that guitar, just there's something about the neck of that guitar. Mm-hmm. If I ha- ever had a guitar again, you know, er- in fact, I. I've had some built, and I've tried to replicate that neck. Nothing ever quite feels 100% the same. No, of course. But I've got a couple yeah. that are close, yeah. a couple custom shop strats that are actually very close to it. That gold strat that you played on my DVD? Yeah, that's that, a great guitar. That's a copy of that neck. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. That's like yeah. an old shoe, man. Yeah, that's it is. Great. Something about I could just put my hands on it. It's perfect. Yeah, it's an awesome guitar. And the P90s, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the humbuckers that are in it, uh, one is a real 1959 PAF in the bridge. I'm, yeah, in, at, yeah, in the bridge. And by the neck was an original Seymour Duncan from the early 70s. Wow. Which he then took out and replaced with a modern Seymour Duncan 59 PAF replica. Ah. So the way he fixed it and put it back together, it's rocking. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds great, it's as man. good as Every night I'll ever need great. it. Yeah. 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 Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. What's your favorite memory of the We Are the World session? It's the, <laughs> do you have any favorite? I, I do. Favorite? I have lots of favorite memories of that session. Uh, my favorite memory was was being a fly on the wall in the middle of that group of singers, watching the interaction between the performers and who kind of was like out of their element by not having their entourage and mm-hmm. and not having their handlers and who felt uncomfortable, who felt comfortable. And I was, I was, Bob Dylan was right over my right shoulder. He was right behind me. Hmm. And um, I had a, some small talk with him, but he was very shy. And he, I think he was very intimidated. I, I don't think he had ever been in a situation like that in his life. I mean, Bob Dylan, you know, obviously coming from where he's coming, he never sang in an ensemble right, group, ever, right. ever. <laughs> you know, so he, he was a little bit 
I think he was a little not intimidated, but I think he was you know kind of felt like wow. Well, everybody was out of there. Daryl described it as as a high school choir. As yeah, soon as every as soon it as was. the handlers left, it turned into right. nobody knew what to. They couldn't have a conversation. Right, but I, I had Ray, Ray Charles was in front of me, two rows down. And I could see the top of his head right off my left shoulder. Like I could reach out and touch him. And for me, he was the coolest because he didn't take any shit from anybody. And as soon as anybody would try to disrupt the flow, he was like, he would just say something. He would like, and everybody would shut up. Whatever Ray said, everybody would just shut up. And he was, and he said, that he was like, because people were starting to like, be creative, mm-hmm. you know, like as the thing was going down, everybody started making suggestions. Everybody you know. was producing. Well, they're all, they were yeah. all their own bosses. You know, you had all the, all the, st- all the, all the stars in the solar system were all in one place. So Michael and, and Lionel and Qu- Quincy Jones were trying to keep it all going in one direction because, you know, it was their song they had a vision for it. And so um, as people began to disrupt the flow Ray Charles would just keep piping up, and he'd go, he'd go, man, shut up. He'd go, shut up, let Michael, let Michael and Lyle, let, they gotta, let, them, let them do the things, their yeah, song. Yeah. Come on, let's just sing, you know. He w- and every time he, he spoke up, people shut up, so it was great. I mean, he's Ray, freaking Ray Charles. What's, what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you on stage? <laughs> A couple things. I think the, the, the one that stands out in my mind was in the, in the um, we had the, the this show that we did in the seventies when we got big after rich girl, she's gone and Sarah smile hit. We put up this show that had this big giant star in as a backdrop <laughs> and it was a mechanical star, right? And it had lights in it and flashed And it had these two runways that went from the side of the stage from downstage all the way behind the band and would meet at the star. And on the last song of the show, we did this song called bad habits and infections. And, um, it was cool. And, <laughs> And Daryl would dress. Daryl would dress up in a doctor's suit, and I had this giant syringe. It was like four feet long, and I would come out and I would inject Daryl, and then I would drag him up these 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 walkway to the star. And at that point, at the end of the show, the band was because it was a heavy rock song. The band was rocking. The star would open up. Like yeah, split in half. Tap, yeah. yeah, oh, it was very totally spinal tap. The star would split in half, and Daryl and I would go inside it, and the star would close, and that was the end of the show. So one night we go through this whole routine, and we run up to the top of the steps, and the star didn't open. <laughs> and so there we are, just standing up there like a bunch of assholes, and the band is like going bang, 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 bang right, like this, and, and the roadies are underneath us, about five, six feet below us, going jump, jump. <laughs> Because we couldn't come back down because we had already made our grand exit, you know. It was really stupid. Like, that was about as stupid as it gets. Yeah, that was our Spinal Tap moment, without doubt. And I remember we had to jump into the arms of the waiting rotaries below us. And where's the star now? Is it's it... in a where I think, I think it still exists, you know. Wow. Can't, be... I can't believe Daryl hasn't, like, put it in his backyard by now. Put it in the back of the club. No, no, that would be something that he would do. In fact, I don't know why he hasn't done it. Like you've never fallen down on stage or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, you know, I um, there was a corner um, in the back going off stage in the dark. And usually a lot of times I'll put glow tape around a corner. Like, you know, it was because our stage was elevated. You know, it's probably a good eight feet off the ground. And I went back to walk back off stage on the encore. And for some reason, it there was no, it wasn't lit. And I took a step and next thing I knew I was on my back. Oh, shit. In the... And I was stretched out over the top of the lighting uh, truss 
the base of the lighting truss. So it had these legs, and there were spikes coming up, like where they would, you know, hold it down with these bolts. And the spike was in between my arm and the guitar, like this. Had it wow. gone on my back, it, it would probably, probably killed me, yeah. And I, I tweaked my shoulder. I think I tore something in my collarbone or something. And I was on my back with my guitar on my chest. The spike was up through my arm and in between my arm and the guitar. And I got up and they picked me up and I went back out and finished the show. But that was crazy. And then one time uh, in the 90s, I remember Daryl was singing Sarah Smile and he walked to the front of the stage and he just fell straight off. Wow. He fell straight down. He kept singing. It was really funny. <laughs> he kept singing and they, these big bouncers were pushing him back up onto the stage. <laughs> It was pretty funny. We actually need to go to sound check. Could you share um, a good T-bone story with me? You know, I know I've heard all about the safety sandwiches and uh, <laughs> a bunch of other things, but I got oh man, there's just so many. You know, he was allergic to all kinds of food, but he loved to Which eat. Which is ironic because he was loved like, hey, to you know, eat everything. Right? Yeah, and he was like a short order cook. He was a great like short order cook. Um, he. <laughs> I don't know. I'll tell you. Maybe I shouldn't share this story because it's really weird. Um, he got some kind of fungus on his on his scrotum one time, <laughs> and I swear to God. And I know it doesn't matter. You know, he's not around. He can't come back and get me. Maybe he's looking down in heaven. He's going to come back and do something <laughs> to me. But he, uh, the doctor told him he was supposed to suck, soak his nuts in milk. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so at the end of every show on our tour rider, he had to have a, a bowl of milk and he had to soak his nuts in milk. And I swear to God, as crazy as it sounds, it made the fungus go away. Don't ask me where, you know, what the hell it was. Maybe we were in Europe. I and can't remember. And the doctor actually was. told him to, to do this? <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, and there was some, but, but the guy was just, he, he was a gem. He was like one of these people. That I just, you know, can't say enough about. A lot of times, you know, even to this day, you know, if I'm in a studio or if I'm writing something or playing, a lot of times I'll think, I think, how would he have done this? I, I really do. I actually what think would about do? what would he do? Like, how would he have played this? Because he had a lot of little tricks, you know, a little because he had a, a, a wide uh, encyclopedic knowledge of music in terms of, you know, he could play folk music, he could play R&B, play blues, he could play jazz, he could play anything. Um, so. He'd always have a lot of tricks, a lot of open string tricks and tuning. A lot of times he'd use a capo and play in different inversions. Mm -hmm. And I'd always watch the way he would approach things. So he always had an interesting approach for stuff, you know. And I try to use those same kind of you know, techniques. He used a capo with an electric guitar on the gig too? Oh, yeah. Oh, All the time. That's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, play, he played You Make My Dreams so in, in E position. Oh, okay. One one fret, capoed on the first fret. Yeah. So he's playing, in, you know, still technically in F, mm -hmm. but he's playing in the open E shape. Mm -hmm. You know, sure. as the bluegrass guys play, clamp one, play E, <laughs> E shape, or is, or is, clamp one E shape. Or is Bobby Rush? It was in the studio with him, and he goes, "Hey, could I use your cheater?" Cheater. Right. <laughs> yeah. The first the first time I was at Telluride Bluegrass Festival, and I asked what key they were in, a guy told me, "Clamp clamp two G shape." I'm like, okay, got it. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you doing this, John. Yeah, man, that's good. Yeah. It's always fun to talk Thanks music. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, John Oates. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Riff Raff. I'd like to give a shout out to the folks at TrueFire.com for helping sponsor this. 
check them out. They've got some amazing educational, instructional videos out there. The music you're listening to today is from my solo record, Highway 90. It's called Trashy. So if you like what you hear, you like this podcast, help me spread the word. Visit me at shaneterrio.com. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.